All right. Well, should we start officially, Tom? Okay. Yeah, let's go. Hello, Arabella. Welcome. Um, Hello. Welcome to a Parallax View podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um. So you've we've recently been in touch a little bit, and I've I've looked at your website, and we've talked a bit. Uh, you you you're you are a um a philosopher of some kind and and, and I, as far as i understand one of your main subjects or of areas of interest is beauty do you do you want to talk about that a little bit or yeah sure um so i'm a transdisciplinary philosopher right so the the praxis i employ it's not just it's not just one area of focus i'm really converging quantum mechanics higher dimensional mathematics, aesthetics, metaphysics, ontology, and, and literature. My background's in English literature, all right? I did my undergrad and my master's in English literature. For me, the power of the word and beautiful poetry and beautiful prose um, has, has always been my greatest love. And um, throughout my life, long before I realized that philosophy or, or this or acad academia was something I was going to pursue. Um, in the midst of a world that I felt had lost, lost its mind, in the midst of a world that I could see was fragmented and broken, in which I felt very confused, beauty was what kept me alive. All right, When I looked up at a starry night sky or I beheld um, an exquisite painting or I listened to a Beethoven quartet or I even just reflected on life's fleetingness. This is what gave my life meaning and what, what made it worth living. So that's the sort of background and the context. My, my sensitivity to life is founded on, 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 on beauty, right? That's what, that is why life is worth living because it has beauty in it and there is beauty embedded in pain. Fast forward, I had a spiritual awakening when I was 28, that entire year. That's um, five years ago now. And I'm now doing a PhD uh, at, in philosophy, cosmology and consciousness in San Francisco, although I do it online. So that's where this transdisciplinary stuff comes into play. And I'm looking at many, many different areas, uh, really exploring the meaning of beauty. But it's more than that. It, my, my thesis is on time specifically the interrelationship between aesthetics and the science of temporality um, and how time, both on like the science of time and, and actually what it is, and I'm arguing a case for retrocausality, um, but, but how beauty plays into that, because my argument is that time exists. The reason it exists, it was orchestrated this way in order for us to experience the unfolding. When you watch a play, the play unfolds through time. That's how the narrative arc occurs. That's how it develops. And that's how you can watch um, you can watch a piece of drama. As I understand it, this is a cosmic drama. This is a tragicomedy, adventure story, romance of epic proportions unfolding. And there is a cascading hierarchy of different beings who are living themselves through us we are like actors on a stage and we're not running the show that's how i see it i mean we could talk about that is quite a fertile window for us to go in many different directions but that's sort of an overview well i had a thought when you were speaking about the connection of time and beauty and and i, I was remembering in, in japanese aesthetics they, they one of the aesthetic ideas is that something past its prime 
is considered beautiful. Like a woman or a man past, yeah, past its prime, mean, meaning not young, not like we have this very, uh, we have this very sort of cliche. You know, beauty is sort of a, a generic thing to describe like youth or, or or whatever, but but actual aesthetic beauty, there there has to be something wrong. There has to be a um something missing. There has to and and the idea of the, the woman just passed her prime or something like this, rather than a supermodel, is is more uh, considered beauty in an aesthetic sense, uh, uh, rather than just in a you know the, an immediate sense. Well, I mean, a crone, the crone archetype is probably one of the most powerful archetypes. That's why women have been so persecuted and our patriarchal society has made women feel that once they pass 25 or once they're no longer young, quote unquote, they're no longer beautiful. Just complete nonsense. Beauty is a cosmic transcendent ideal. It is a form. It is an archetype. It's nothing to do with how old someone is. It's nothing to do with how fertile they are. It's irrelevant, absolutely irrelevant. So yeah, like wabi sabi in 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 Japanese culture, if a if a pot has been broken, and then it's it's pieced up together again, even in 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 the cracks and its fragmentation and the recovery of that, therein the beauty lies because there's an authenticity, it belies of authenticity, um, and I mean it's such a it's such a complex, nuanced, multivalent idea wabi sabi. But it really is mining into the true nature of beauty in a way that our society has completely lost. So when we talk about the beauty industry, we're talking about cosmetics. It's not beauty. Beauty is the truth. Beauty, mm -hmm. truth, you know, truth, beauty. There's all you know on earth and all you need to know. This is, this is the heart of life. It is, I argue, why the universe exists. The cause of the universe is beauty. It's, it's a god. And the, and the telos, the purpose, the final realization is beauty also. Because what is beauty if not complete unity? The most perfectly beautiful things have a harmonious interrelationship of all their constituent parts. And that's what the universe is moving towards. And we can see that literally, you look at the cosmology of it. It's moving towards increasing iterations of complexity and coherence. I.e. it's becoming more and more and more and more and more unified. Ever since the Big Bang. Literally from the moment of conception, it's been it's it spread itself out and is moving over time towards more unity, complex systems. Hmm. That's an interesting kind of definition of, of beauty, like the movement towards the movement towards unity. I wouldn't say it's unity in itself because that's a static state of where it's not exactly static. There's also this crack in everything, as Leonard Cohen would say that like the wabi-sabi has a crack in it. But I would argue that beauty and it, the archetype of beauty, as in what Plato called beauty, it is mm -hmm. full unity. When you see beauty and wabi-sabi, we're in the physical dimension. We're not seeing the whole archetypal form. We would explode. That's the cosmic divine consciousness as God. Anything we see beauty in, it's like, it's like a tiny diluted aspect of the whole. Mm -hmm. Does that make mm -hmm. sense? Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. I mean, that's just what I, I mean, again, this is very, this is my perspective, but I'm drawing on Plato, the the, the Neoplatonists, Schelling, Schiller, Hegel. I'm very much in alignment with a lot of thinkers, but then I'm, I'm making it my own by how I'm incorporating time. Because what I'm arguing with time is has not been argued before, i.e. that the second law of thermodynamics is defunct. 
the second law of thermodynamics is defunct. What do you what do you mean by that? Okay. Um I should say that it's it's um that the idea that irreversible time is an absolute that's defunct. Entropy does exist. Second law of thermodynamics mm -hmm. is entropy, as you know. Yeah. Um, which is the dissipation um from hot to cold, the dissipation of order to disorder. That's the only law in physics in which time has an irreversible arrow. So most scientists, pretty much all scientists, even the spiritual progressive ones, say there's an arrow of time that's that's incontrovertible. My argument is that, yes, this exists in the physical dimension. That's why if you break a glass on the floor, you can't unbreak it. All right. It's why we can't unage ourselves. We, we are born, we live and we die. That's entropy. It's why the 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 moon has its cycles it's why the earth orbits the sun but i don't think the universe is it's is physical and so not that i don't think it it's not this is a mental universe this is a mental universe not a material universe matter is only four percent of the known universe it's likely to be much smaller than that so what's the rest of the universe it's not physical it's not physical and time isn't operating is operating differently on different dimensions, right? And that there are, as chaos theory shows us, the branch, this branch of mathematics, there are many like dimensions of reality and patterns we see here, even if they appear complex and incoherent here, are coming from a deeper order. Does that make sense? Sure. I can yeah. explicate any of that because that was a lot of information. What but... kind of order? I didn't get that. What do you mean? What kind of order? Yeah, you you uh, it comes from a deeper order. You said so. What kind? Yeah, of... mm -hmm. yeah. So, um, David Bohm, the cosmologist and quantum physicist. Do you know guys know who David Bohm is? Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. So it's the implicate order. It's the implicate order. This is the explicate order. This is the outwardly expressed material dimension and enfolded within every single atom on the subatomic realm is the implicate order, which is a realm of a much the the greatest realm of reality. This is like a tiny fragment of it. That's the greatest realm of reality, implicate order, and it is implicate. It is unfolded, it is inward, and it's outside of time and space. Right, so that's, you know, that's quantum mechanics that shows us that. But on top of that, it's, it's, it's clear there are many, there are other dimensions. There are other orders of reality, um, if you will. I see it like a, if this is a cosmic symphony, like an orchestra of instruments playing, there's different matrices of resonance, like vibratory matrices in which different there are different orders of reality that exist. The deepest order being the implicate in which all information is constantly unfolding into and coming back in a recursive feedback loop. I can explicate any of this again because I'm so in my research that I talk yeah. about this stuff and I just assume that everyone's speaking the same language, but I know that's not the case. So no, I think I've got it. I, I think there's 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 some kind of uh let's say uh um a debate between Platonist view of reality that there's that there's this sort of perfection at the bottom of the universe and then the process view. Um uh, whereas where where whereas things are just emerging all the time and and so so there the, whatever order the order you you as soon as you 
arrive at an order of something, then it's it's it disappears. Um, uh, so so is it is it is it you are are you are you saying that there's this there's this perfect world of forms and then and then because that's sort of a dualistic view from the approach of let's I say the non-dualist view, which is which is which is that these forms are always you know uh, moving and evolving and and uh, transforming themselves. Um, I'm both. I'm writing a book right now called Being and Becoming. I don't think they're mutually exclusive. Where we are, like this dimension we're in, is in continual flux. It's in process, clearly. It's not deniable. It's becoming. It's in process. Yeah. Now, at the deepest order of reality, and we know this because this is quantum mechanics, it's outside of time and space. Anything outside of time and space can't be it. It cannot be itself in a process of becoming because that requires time. It requires mm -hmm. time to be in process. If you say something's becoming and emerging and changing, it's in time. It's not in time, yeah. it's not. If you think about the alpha and omega, yeah, which is God, the alpha and omega is the beginning and the end. Mm -hmm. Think about the way the Big Bang works, the way time works, and this is where time comes into it. Everything's already been realized. This universe has already ended. All moments are one moment. Boom, it's all happened. Yeah. It's all already happened. We are not perceiving that because we are in a physical body, in a physical dimension, which, by the way, is a complete illusion. It's a complete illusion, but we're nonetheless in it, in this video game. Um, but that doesn't mean that's the total nature of reality. So, yes, we're evolving. There's entropy here. We're having the experience of the unfoldment of the process. And maybe the universe is just bringing this dimension into a harmonic resonance with all other aspects of itself. But on the very highest level of reality, it's all already perfect. This is the infinite mind of light. It's, omni it's omniscient, it's omnibenevolent, it's, it's all things outside of time and space. There are many universes happening right now. Even if you say now, it's in time. It's very hard for us to really grapple with these things because it... It, necess it necessitates transcending time and space. And we can't really get our heads around that properly. Not really. Yeah, we can't, we what's, can't what's, grasp let me, it. Let me, what's resonating with me um, from what you're saying is, you know, the relationship between beauty and, and time, because you have, what's resonating particularly is you have, you have the narrative layer you know what you're kind of describing and then you have like the the personal layer so what does it mean for me in my life right now because what i'm struggling with is um to uh, find beauty in every moment of my life mm -hmm. right and so that's i mean i can use a narrative to uh, steer me and orient myself properly in the world and can find some harmonies and uh, hidden laws and hidden harmonies in my daily life to find a way to encompass all of that and, and to, to see the beauty, even in the things that I'm doing routinely, right? And so that's that's what I find interesting, you know, just apart from all these grand narratives, let's say, so how um, how can I be in a state that enables me to um, see the beauty in things, mm. you know, and mm -hmm. and and you know, and, and and to ask myself the question: How much is that dependent on my biases, on my on my ways of approaching the world, 
can I see the like where are the limits of beauty, right? So when when am I able to explore beauty? And I don't know if 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 that kind of contributes something to this conversation here, but this is at least something that's resonating with me. You yeah, know? definitely. I love that. I love that you you're seeing the narrative because that's what it is. It is this ultimate love story of the universe of which we are a part. And, you know, lo uh, life is filled with a lot of suffering, a lot of suffering here. There's a lot of chaos. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of injustice, a lot of, you know, all, all these things. And, you know, a lot of those aren't beautiful. I mean, I think of some of the 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 massacres, the 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 horrors that have occurred on this earth. Can you say they're beautiful themselves? No, no. But so to go back to chaos theory, and again, I don't know how much you guys know about chaos theory, but what chaos theory shows us that over time, the more time that passes, what appears to be chaotic is actually part of a of a pattern. It's taking a longer amount of time to reveal itself. Should I give you an example? I'll give an example for how this works and then how we can apply it to our lives, to how we can then interpret things that are actually really not beautiful, but potentially very painful. So an example with chaos theory is if you turn a tap on like a little bit, you, you open it a little bit and it will start dripping and it will drip into a metrical rhythm, you know, drip, drip, drip. That's a very solid beat. That there's a clear pattern there, it's ordered. If you open the tap a little bit more, it'll start dripping in a random and chaotic rhythm. And it seems that there's no order to it. There's no pattern. It's not repeating itself. However, if you measure the drips over a much longer period of time and you look at them at the algorithm, there's a very, very coherent pattern. But to the limited perspective, it looks like chaos until you measure it over time. Same things in our lives, some awful things can happen or some very painful things can happen. Over time, things circle back, things come full circle, people weave in and out, themes recur. Our, you know, our life is founded on time, we can move through space, you cannot move back and forth in time, only in our consciousness. And there is this dancing, immaterial shape, it's the shape, it's the shape of consciousness. Raw, it's the shape of time also. It's the rhythm of our life's unfolding. And I see it as this beautiful, spiraling, dancing arabesque, which is emulates the shape of time. And I really think if you can lean into that, that's how you can start experiencing life's beauty. You know, those moments of clarity. Maybe it will take you 20 years to figure something out, 40 years, 60 years. But there are all these moments that life presents us with for us to reflect on what's happened and to anticipate where we're going. And that's why with this whole, this movement from Eckhart Tolle and so on to the power of now and about being here now, I'm like, I actually think it's more about how we converge the past, the present and the future. And we can dance between all of them in a way that allows us to have the most aesthetic, aesthetic experience of our lives. Mm -hmm. that's interesting that like I, I agree with you about the echo toll i think this idea of the now is sort of a it's a wrong idea because you're, you're when as soon as you identify a now then it's gone and it's in the it's past totally and, and as soon as you uh and and 
and and uh, it's and whatever is happening is moving into the future. So the three times are happening simultaneously. If we just focus on the now, we we end, we lose the depth reality, the depth aspect, right? Because the cross has a has a has a verticality of depth, and then there's a horizontal, and time is moving this way. But there's also the di- the depth. Love that. Um, right. The other thing you were it. saying is that that I thought was interesting, and that I was thinking about of, or as you were speaking about beauty, is is and I, mean, I know you you had this quote from Dostoevsky. Mm. um the saying beauty will save the world and it's interesting that he would say that as a as an explorer of the darkest aspects of, of human human, human right. nature so so i like i want to get away from a pollyannish view of beauty let's say you know oh totally i mean without going into too much detail i'll tell you right now my life has been full of inexorable despair so much beauty in my life but i i have not walked an easy path in terms of my my the interiority of my psyche, right where I've been, um, I have experienced unimaginable loneliness and and confusion, and loss and grief, and betrayal and all these things. And I've plumbed the depths. And in those moments, I just thought, if this is life, I don't I don't want to live. If this is it. But as I progressed on my journey and and through touching those depths and through also touching the deepest depths of beauty and joy and laughter and all the things, all of the things, when you amalgamate them and you understand the narrative arc of your journey that emerges through that and how it touches the void and, and, and it touches the depths through that and the 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 ability allows you to feel the fullness of this human experience. It is so unimaginably beautiful. I honestly, I believe with Carl Jung that if you don't suffer, you haven't fully lived. Like you need you need to go to some level of pain and depth to feel what it means to be human. You know, we're not living in a limitless, formless bliss state here. We come here for the whole thing. And my recent experience has been the less I resist it, the easier it becomes to alchemize. Do, do you know what I mean? It's the more like whatever life brings at me, I'm like, all right, bring it on, bring it on. And I think so many of us are so scared to feel pain. We live in a society that says, you know, we've got to be happy and we're we're moving towards something. We have no collective rituals to help us grieve, to help us grieve people who've died, to help us grieve uh, and acknowledge the trauma of of the past of what nations what we've all been through that's what we're missing is this collective capacity for catharsis that the greeks used to have which is pain tragedy pain people dying everyone in our life like we're all going to experience someone dying in our life right at some point that's painful you can't shirk that but it doesn't need to be suffering it can be beautiful if you have the right parameters structure of consciousness around you which is which is integrating it into a bigger cosmic context of meaning it's the lack of meaning that's so horrendous right now so how do you do that if you have how like a traumatic or like a bad experience how do you how do you bring yourself in a state of mind that you can see the beauty in there like well, what do you to... do like what do you do in your mind or in your in your being well Personally, I'm hyper aware of my of of my life. And so far as I've kept a journal since I was eight, religiously. So I have a very, very, very clear sense of everything that's happened to me. I'm a very self-reflective person. 
All right. So for me, this really begins with self-reflection and the courage to ask big metaphysical ontological questions. Who am I? What is the meaning of this? What is the meaning of this reality? What is my place within it? It's like positioning yourself in this relational dynamic all of the time, how you're relating to different people, how they make you feel, what this tells you about yourself. Uh, archetypes, archetypes are amazing for helping understand this. You know, we're all, this is an archetypal drama playing out as far as I understand, you know, and understanding which archetypes you embody so for me, I know I've classically been the outsider, the rebel, the trickster, the magician, um, the alchemist, the sorceress, like certain things. Understanding that, it helps me, helps me understand myself. Because this basically is the nub, actually, of everything. It's the journey of self-discovery. It's the journey of self-discovery. That's why we're here, to discover the depths of our psyche, because the depth of our psyche is inseparable from the psyche of the cosmos. And let, me, let, me, let, cosmos. Me, let me interrupt you there because it's um, while you were describing that, um, I, I remembered we had a podcast with Alex Ebert. I think it's two weeks ago, three weeks ago. Andrew, when was it? Mm -hmm. And so yeah. the topic was strangely somewhat similar. It was uh, we were talking about grief and pain. Mm. And talking about the mechanism. And so he was describing, you know, the, the question was the same. So how do you deal with it? How do you deal um, with these kinds of phenomena? And he said, and I found that very interesting. So if you really immerse yourself in the pain, in the in the grief, and if you make it an existent, as existential as it can be, you feel it the most as you can feel it, then you come through at the other side of the tunnel and then um you can see the beauty in it and there's uh, that's a whole different thing than to see just the uh narratological kind of thing it's cosmos and archetypes and here and there it's it's a it's a palpable uh experience you know to 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 eat the pain till you're full and then you can let it go and then you can see the beauty of all of this but this is a this is uh an embodied experience and so um and that that was the question how do you do it right so how do you deal with um how do you deal with these kinds of unpleasant difficult complicated experiences where you are challenged um, you, you, where you challenge, okay, how can you see, how can I see the beauty of things? How do you get to that point? Because well, I think I, just I to add add to what you're saying, just a little bit, just as a footnote, he also said that you turn up that, right? You turn up the volume of your pain, right? That's what I mean. As, yeah, yeah, as yeah, an yeah, exercise, yeah. it's not just that you you feel it completely; that you actually you 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 intensify it. Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. I mean, I guess for me, as someone with bipolar who I felt 10 times more of what anyone else around me was feeling. I don't know if that's true for me that I felt like I needed to turn up the pain. For me, it was more a case of, well, first of all, not resisting it, not resisting it, but actually um, welcoming it because I used to resist it for a long time. Having community around you to help you alchemize it. Now, the narratology of the cosmos and the archetypes are not exclusive from a somatic experience. To understand what archetypes are, you don't understand it up here. It's a somatic aesthetic experience. Aesthetics comes from the word aesthesis, which means to sense, to feel. 
you sense and you understand beauty not through your intellect but through your body first that's how you feel it because it's ineffable I encountered archetypes recently actually about two and a half weeks ago and then I had the and then I had the session with Andrew where we were looking at the tarot so archetypes are really big for me right now and I had this this mystical experience watching a film and I had this realization that everything's a symbol everything's an archetype but this wasn't a thought it was a full-blown mystical revelation in my body so now as I'm experiencing the unfolding of my life including all the pain it's really understanding this role that I'm playing of the drama that I've chosen to play that doesn't that doesn't mean I'm like bypassing the pain with my intellect. It's a sense making process also. Right. Because the beauty of the pain only comes if you can make sense of it. If, if the pain is senseless, it will it will not provide beauty. Yeah. There's also I'm not the an existentialist of... philosopher. I'm not an existentialist philosopher. I don't agree with it. So I think it's a question of uh, attention, uh, att attending to it, because. Mm. Um, it's you know a, a little bit like in the Gurdjieff work of conscious suffering. If, if suffering is just arbitrary, it just tears you apart and destroys you. Right. But as, you, as soon as you bring con uh, consciousness to it or attention to it, then it then it transforms itself again. And I think that is an aesthetic process. I think that is an artistic process. And I think that's an embodied process, as you're saying. Yep. I, I think that is a process of of uh, is transforming this. In, in, in your body and um yeah. yeah and the other thing as i was thinking about this also the other guy was talking a guy who had done a lot of gurdjieff work about how uh you know the gurdjieff idea is that we have three brains there's the the intellect the the um the the uh the emotive brain and then the motility the movement part of our, ourselves and we have all these three aspects these three sort of central locus of intelligence and they often uh, they often exist at separate from each other and that is in a way our suffering is is the lack of connection between all of these aspects of ourselves so we could be living in this highly conceptual world and then suddenly something happens to us and we find ourselves weeping and we don't even know why because we're not very connected to our our feelings or 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 our body could be reacting in a very bizarre way to you know uh to something and we we might have a bodily reaction to something and so so um so for me, like the, the, the harmony is the, the interesting thing that he said. And the thing that really hit me is that it's not that we, we should necessarily work on these three centers so much as the connection between things and the harmonizing of, of, of all of these aspects of ourselves. And that's kind of what he, Gurdjieff calls the work, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I love that. I haven't read any Gurdjieff. I've heard of him, but I, I think that's just spot on because then you're basically tuning yourself if we're an instrument to play the music of the cosmos within all of its depth, and that's like a kind of fine tuning, you're tuning the channel. So I love that. That's, that's spot on. Yeah. And he, 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 he was a musician and he does talk about the octaves mm. and he does talk about mm. this leap between octaves and, and uh, he, he often uses the, the musical uh, metaphor. Mm -hmm. So there's a, like a system set of theoretic and psychological insight from Ludwig von Bertolfani and, it reverberates through psychology. It's like the the more complex your mind gets and your consciousness, the more you are receptive for uh, receptive for pain and suffering because you mm -hmm. have way more uh, understanding of all the, the the problems. And and the thing is that you can't find a permanent 
solution for this kind of continuous problems, which was the reason why Schopenhauer said that, you know, you can't really escape uh, this painful aspect of life and the only solution is art, right? Yeah. And I yeah. think we're like constantly over, over challenged because we have like these different approaches to dealing with pain and unpleasant experience and, and they, they might help for a second or two but uh, or even for a minute or a day, but then ex existence has come rushing back, and and you know we, we have to face it again. And and sometimes meditation helps, and sometimes therapy helps, and sometimes the good old gin helps. You know to <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. Or, or or beauty or whatever. It's like um, some you know. What, we... what helps the most is to stop looking for the remedy. You know, in a way, right? You know, in a sense. I think. Well, Sorry I like, to jump I like in there. You were, no, you have to look for the remedy. No, I know we're always looking for the remedy, you know, through gin, through meditation, through whatever. We're always in search of, of the remedy, but it's the moments of kind of like, oh, you sort of accept the whole totality that, that, that you, you well, release for a second. Mm -hmm. That's what I meant. Yeah, that's a rocky moment. No? Well, maybe it's mm -hmm. more about redemption. Maybe it's more about re like a redemption than a remedy. Hmm. Do you know, that's kind of how I see it. And I see beauty as the great redeemer. Because also in terms of beauty and art being a solution, beauty and art were also the origin of our species. And so far as we were painting on the walls of caves as Paleolithic beings, as complex symbolic languages emerging, you know, that's really what, that was one of the first differentiating factors between us and other animals. You know, there was beer, tools, sure, fire, but then art, painting art. Like what happened? What was that moment when the first human felt compelled? Because they were they their consciousness had evolved to such a point that they could perceive something out there more than them, something mystical that impelled them to make art, hmm. to, to put their hand upon a wall of a cave, to to paint the animals they could see around them because this is symbolic consciousness has emerged symbolic consciousness whereby we belong to an interpenetrated nexus of being and that's the origin of art the need to express that because the reality of it is so overwhelming the noetic power of it is so overwhelming that's where art was born right that's why art is the solution it's not like it's the art, it's, but it, it preceded the suffering though, which is why we must return to it. It's a return. Does that mm. make sense? I think the, it's the excess of life that needs to be uh, expressed or the, or the human being will die in a way. It's, it's like you have to give something up. So you put it into a symbol. Uh, you know, this is like, it's a cooling because it's like cooling the fire with mercury you put it into a symbol so that you can you can step back and look at it in for a second you know uh, for a second uh, rather than being completely swallowed up by reality um you have this transcendent moment yeah i don't get what you're saying andrew can you well i mean that <laughs> That well, it, uh, you, you know arabella's talked about uh alchemy the alchemical process a little bit and and i think that you know the fire is is blazing up you know we have these incredible and i think that early man right just in, in you know in, in the in the wilderness just has this sort of 
being overwhelmed by experience. And, and I guess the primitive state is just a state of complete overwhelm. Right. Um, and then, and then, and then art comes when, when we are able to separate ourselves from that over overwhelm. And, and so it's like the cooling mercury drips down, you know, and, uh, and whereas the blazing fire is, 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 is and and then it meets in 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 the center and then you have symbols which which are which are ways in, or, in order for you to 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 see through that like you know just like a stained glass or something is a way for you to to you know to see through th through something it it on one level it distorts reality but on the other level it enhances so it's sort of like a a distortion so the idea of excess that you mentioned is quite interesting because i mean yeah. sure we are always always overwhelmed like the prehistoric man still yeah. i mean we're yeah. living in an increasingly complex world and so to create something that is beautiful or stand in awe uh you know next to something that is beautiful like even if it's just the model because like what a what a male or female model is representing it's kind of culture uh uh you know, um, remembering that beauty is important for our existence to to create something that that um, over surpasses the complexity of life. You know, it's um, I think that's that's the the point here. I think that you're referring to this this kind of interplay between complexity and and excess, which is channeled into beauty, even if it's just genetically. Hmm. No. Yeah. Too muchness of things, right? How do we deal with the too muchness of things? Like Arabo was talking about her states where everything was just very right. You talked about those states of mind, and somebody it might be for for somebody to experience sadness. It might be hard for them to experience sadness on one level. For another person, they they have too much sadness that it's just unbearable. Um, uh, you know, I guess we go from from being a state of numbness to 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 overwhelm and so somehow we have to navigate it's like we have to navigate that excess and lack or or you know feeling dead and numb or to feeling too uh you know to, to feeling like we're burning alive or, or you know or or drowning or i would say people have different sensibilities as well you know yeah people have very different sensibilities you know van gogh and virginia wolf and william blake Shakespeare have a particular kind of sensibility. It's often why the artists are the ones who feel the most. You know, I'm sure you guys have read The Doors of Perception by Aldous Huxley. The way he couches it, I find the most um, insightful, where he talks about the mind at large, right, the cosmic consciousness, and how people have an aperture in their mind, like a filter. And the artists are the one, their filter is so wide. It's like the cosmic consciousness is just streaming in and it's overwhelming. It's overwhelming, which is why you know, Virginia Woolf killed herself. Van Gogh cut off his ear. Yeah. You know, these people endure. Wittgenstein had a full on mental breakdown. He had to go live in a hut in Norway by himself for two years or something. Like these people, because they understand more, they see more and they are very isolated, therefore because they're seeing more and feeling more than anyone else. Whereas actually, if everyone was like that, we wouldn't have a society running very well. We need, you know, society runs on people being, a lot of people who are quite anaesthetized, perpetuated yeah. by the fast food, the alcohol, the TV, perpetuating their state of anesthesia. You know, there are people who go to work for five days a week and hate what they do. 
so they can get drunk at the weekend and forget. That's their life. Yeah. We That's have a, a state of ugliness, like that. as a contrary to beauty, yeah. right? That is pure ugliness, right? Is that, pure is ugliness. That, exactly. Yeah. That's why we've got to, I want to, that's why I, I want to help eliminate that by virtue of helping people remember who they are and access their highest blueprint because it's just not acceptable to me that people would have to live their lives like that, you know? And I'm just thinking on a, on a macro visionary ideal level of what society mm -hmm. could look like because I'm an idealist. Yeah. That's not okay to me, that humans who are creative nurturing intelligent beings live like that yeah well it isn't okay but often like it, it, often the most powerful way of transforming it i think is is trans is is indirectly and that art is mm -hmm. kind of indirect in that sense right it's not a full-on social social movement um necessarily it's it's you know shakespeare does more just by just by describing the the archetypes, the dramas yeah. of human human nature, than than if he had some sort of program for, uh, I don't know, cleaning up the oceans. Not that we don't need those things as well, but no, I agree because it's the truth. He's providing the truth. Yeah, and nothing's more powerful than the truth. Also, one of my favorite quotes is from Terence McKenna. I might have to just get it up about um, how the artists are going to change the world. Um, sorry, you could chat amongst yourselves. Or no, it's quote. well. I mean, it's it's it's. Uh, again, I think it's 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 vitally important because we have all this power right now. Mm -hmm. so there's all this power, right? There's all this informational power, and there's the 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 AIs coming on, and there's just intense intense human just raw informational technological power right. but it's like uh it's like uh what johnny cash says in his song it's like uh it's like an empire of dirt right <laughs> that aspect of you know this unspeakable aspect of grace or or the divine or you know which the artist is always pointing I mean, I know that's the reason why I love this book, which I'm reading now, uh, uh, The Sun Also Rises from Hemingway. It's an old book. Mm. Right? I don't know if you have mm. ever read it, but it's, mm, uh, yeah, I have, yeah. it's about this lost lost generation after the First World War, you know, outsiders like like people who were like thrown out of, you know, out of the society, like death had a grip on them and let them go once more. And so there were like people like drifters in Paris, then going to the Pamplona kind of um uh bullfights and they were just you know indulging into carnal kind of uh things and drinking all the time and and but there's so much beauty in in that dirt you know mm. it's the same it's like you you go and you you go in 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 the the dirt and you find the gold there yeah, mm. and that is like there, there are eternal truths in that, and I mean the character of 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 Brad Ashley. I mean that was like the, you know the the first modern woman described in in uh, in modern literature basically, and she was just she was just wild, you mm. know. It's like you see, it's it's artists. Right? Everybody. Mm -hmm. 
What? I'm saying it's people like Hemingway who are able to do that. Right. That's why we need the artists, the writers, the people to show us the gold and the dirt that maybe right. others of us can't see. Does that make right. sense? They're the ones who can yeah, go sure. in and show it. And it's like that, you know, I want to give you this quote from Terence McKenna. He said, the artist's task is to save the soul of mankind and anything less is a dithering while Rome burns. Because of the yeah. artists who are self-selected for being able to journey into the other, if the artists cannot find the way, then the way cannot be found. Yeah, I, absolutely. Amen. I mean, sure. it's, it's obvious, right? It's like, I mean, to so me, because I, I studied literature like you for a long time, but I, but I, it just seems that it's obvious that's where the key is um to everything because everything else fails you know ideology fails on all levels you know technological improvement fails everything fails right except for that i also agree with you you said something about you know shakespeare how much more important that is than like a climate like a cleaning up the oceans campaign i couldn't agree more i could not agree more and this is what i think about every activist for whatever cause it is is there is one problem that we need to solve. There's literally, mm -hmm. there's one problem and it's a sickness of mind. There's a sickness of consciousness. And if you heal that, you will heal all of it. Yeah. Trafficking, poverty, um, rape, the climate catastrophe, whatever, racism, homophobia, social injustice. It's all one problem. It's literally one problem. If you awaken people, and you mystically enlighten them and you allow them to touch beauty and people are living in that aesthetic realm of absolute beauty that's how things will just organize themselves but it'll be a self-organizing intelligence and you just need enough people to be there i, I don't even think we're going to get the whole world there just enough people that there's a, some sort of tipping point like that's really what i'm going for mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, even one or two people is good. You know, even two people is good, I think, you know. Well, exactly. Like if you're going for numbers, you're 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 going in the wrong direction in a way. If you're trying to increase your numbers, we were talking about this a little bit over the channel because obviously we're trying to increase our numbers because we want to, you know, we want we want this to, to be we want this to we want to earn a little money and we want to increase our numbers. This is kind of normal business of life, right? On the other, on the other level, that that if I guess if the if the if the depth is not there. Then the whole yeah. thing is just worthless, right? It's, there's well, it's well, a of worthless course. pursuit. Of course. I guess what I mean is that I want, first of all, it's always been a small group of people that have changed the world. That's a quote from Margaret Mead, which I paraphrase, but it's always been a small group of people, right, that have had the most impact. It's been figures like um, uh, Nelson Mandela or Martin Luther King or whoever, right? These individuals who make waves. So it doesn't, you know... It, it just only needs to be a small group of people to really create the change. But I do think there's a lot of humans out there who do question reality, who do sense there's got to be more, but they just haven't been given the information and they're on the cusp of awakening. And I just think we're living in this evolutionary time where we're moving into, we're going through this threshold into an unprecedented iteration of reality. As, and it's a bifurcation. You've got AI and everything kind of descending into horror on one hand. But then I really think there's tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people who actually are not yet awake, who are who are ready to awaken in the next decade. That's my intuition.
I could be wrong, but it's my intuition. Yeah. Well, they have access to the information now, which is interesting. It depends what they do with that information, I would say. This information is not mainstream, though. Yeah, we're, no, we're talking well, about you and I. This is not yet yeah. mainstream. Yeah. Now, in the 1960s, that was not mainstream either. It was a counterculture. It's become so because it was so powerful. It's become very famous. I think our task, us here in this room, and our associates on this, you know, our fellow voyagers here to try and make a change. Our task is to make this shit go mainstream. Is to infiltrate. You know, the Trojan horse not, kind of, kind of. Yes. I do not accept the Kardashians being some of the most powerful people in the world. I don't accept that. I don't accept our current political systems. I'm a full-on, like, revolutionary. I feel like Liberty leading the people in that Delacroix painting. Do you know which one I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. In the French Revolution, she's, yeah. like, bare-breasted, running across with a torch in her hand. That's how I feel right now. Like, I want to tear this shit down. I'm going to go, in a minute, I'm going to go watch the coronation and just plot my... Take <laughs> <laughs> your revolutionary takeover. Yeah, actually, that the the, the the in the in the tarot, the world symbol, it's the same symbol as that woman. Uh, kind of really, yeah, you can look at it. The really? the, the revolutionary wo- uh, woman with the with the breasts. Yeah, Re- that's so interesting. See, it's these archetypal expressions again. You see, yeah, they come up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's so a, the other the aspect of the art. Go ahead. What what will that mean for you if you have a new king? Doesn't I mean when you say what does it mean for me? Do you mean for the UK, for me personally? No, I mean for you. Hmm? It doesn't it doesn't really mean it really doesn't mean any it doesn't mean anything. I'm so detached I'm so detached from it. I liked the Queen. I liked the Queen. I think a lot of us did because we grew up with her our whole lives. Our parents grew up with her their whole lives. And she represented, she was, you know, the bastion, the last kind of vestige of empire, of an old world order. But by the way, she was kind of, there was something about her, I respected her. But when she died, I was like, this is done now. This is done. This whole thing is done. And the fact that Charles is ascending to the throne I'm not a vehement anti-royalist. I just, it's like, dude, you just inherited 200 million pounds tax-free from the queen. We're paying for this coronation. There's a cost of living crisis. Like, it's just, it's just no, I can't. I can't really get my head around it. But I also don't get that emotionally involved in politics because it's all nonsense. And I want to take the whole thing down. So I don't get involved in identity politics, Donald Trump, or that. I don't care. It's all nonsense. That's how I feel about the... the, I'm just watching it like I'm watching an episode of the Jerry Springer show, except it's Earth. Mm. That's what it feels like. (laughs) I'm like, oh, shit, this is where I incarnated? All right, cool. I think the Empire is shrinking and shrinking and shrinking and shrinking till it disappears, kind of like... And then, then, um, you know, I was doing this analysis of, of the Emperor... And the emperor and in the empress, right? Yeah. As two archetypes, and the empress is is the uh, it's like you know it's like it's like the queen of all this of 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 the the natural uh, you know world, mm. and then the emperor is is the king of the, uh, you know the all the different the worldly parts, and he he brings together all the different 
disparate parts, right? And there's one guy was saying, okay, now that what so the emperor is dead, right? In a sense, or the the empress is dead, and then then every person has to become sort of the the it, it all it, or in a sense this sounds kind of ridiculous, but it, it all becomes kind of an internal thing. Like we're moving towards an internalization of all these things, rather than them existing out there as as some political structure. Mm, cool, I like that. I don't know what you think about that, Tom. Well, I don't know. I'm asking because I'm living in Spain. The Spain obviously has a kind of similar monarchy still in comparison to the UK. So uh, when the king is in town, people all, you know, start to shiver. And yeah, weird. You know, the old guard is falling on the knees. It's the king, you know? Um, and so it's kind of funny to me. And I have a friend, I have a friend in London and I will just, I think I will make the whole day, I will just make a barrage of jokes because he has a new king now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's so weird, but it's so it's weird. weird. Eh? The whole thing. And the thing is, unlike Spain, I mean, our monarchy, our monarchy has the most power. This is the most powerful monarchy in the world. And, you know, I just, for that reason, I just, I kind of can't get my head around at how much power they still wield. Even if they don't have power over legislation, the economic power they wield, the symbolic power they wield, and the fact that we still have our an our fully fledged aristocracy with hereditary peers in the House of Lords who have the power to make laws, who who have inherited a title, who are in the House of Lords, it's twenty twenty three. That's been going on for a thousand years. Just stuff yeah. like that, and like how, how, so I don't really think about it too much. I don't have time. I'd rather think about beauty. Do you know what I mean? I'd rather like focus on my PhD research and you know hang out with revolutionary people. But isn't it, I mean, like as a, as a last question, isn't as aristocracy institutionalized beauty? Aren't they institutionalized beauty? What do you yeah. mean? Yeah, well, the aristocracy. I mean, uh, ritual, uh, form, um, ways of be behavior. Isn't that a form of uh, institutionalized beauty? The decorum. That's an Did interesting point. Mm -hmm. I, I, I've, 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 I've dated a couple of members of the aristocracy um, and I've been exposed to that milieu. And there's a point of what you said, which I agree with, insofar as there is a great level of refinement um, in these practices and traditions that have grown yeah. up over centuries. Right. When I went to America, I was actually pretty horrified to see there was a very, very clear distinction between my European culture I come from and American culture or lack lack thereof of what I'm used right. to in a European sensibility. Because it's all new money, people, it's not uh, refinement, right? Well, it's, you know, the thing is when people went to America, the whole point was fuck Europe, fuck the UK, fuck everything about them. We're free, we're whatever. But people, for me, like encountering people who didn't put their knife and fork together at the end of a meal, I had never experienced that before. Because manners, etiquette, that's such a huge backcloth of my life coming from England. You go to the, in the aristocracy, you know, it's like that on steroids. There are rules on how you eat soup. We you know what I mean, which, which spoon you oh. use, all of this. So it's like, it's, it's, very ref, it's very refined, but it's also very rigid. 
And so what, what part, part of what makes America so amazing is how free it is in its thinking. And part, you know, that freedom is demonstrated in the lack of table manners, right? So it's like they both go hand in hand in a way. It's completely free, unfettered, um, liberated from all these European strictures. But, but can, I, same... can I jump in because we don't have that much oh. time? Because like, yeah. sorry, but isn't that, I mean, I kind of miss that. You know, it's like, um, what, what I mean with that is, you know, in, in context of social interactions, be it with, friends or with romantic interests there's nothing worse for me than to try try to date a hippie girl because all rules of engagement are kind of off so you right. want to meet you want to meet thursday yeah and then she doesn't show up like things right. like which is like yeah. you know there's like a kind Rude. of decorum which Rude. is mm -hmm. no yeah but there's like a kind of decorum which is kind yeah. of nice because it uh, facilitates a kind of easiness Yeah. Uh, and 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 the social interaction, not just in the dating realm, but you know, in business everywhere. Yeah. If everybody okay. agrees on on these kinds of rules, and yeah. and if you completely do away with it, it just makes everything complicated. I agree. Yeah. And by the way, actually, what what it is, it's about sophistication, being sophisticated, and being elegant. And for me, that that incorporates grace, refinement, restraint some level of coherent order, as you say, like this is how we do things. Right. right. This is the etiquette, which if it's taken too far can be very constricting, but when um, when used, I think appropriately is, is, is necessary. Look, I'm, I'm, I'm all for that. I like refinement, I like elegance, I like history, I like culture, I like regalia, I like old buildings, you know, I like these things very much. Um, and I think it's about holding it lightly while also having a progressive attitude. It's like that balance. Right. right? It's the positive aspect of the patriarchy, basically. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I'm being from Canada. I know that I'm kind of I'm kind of rough compared to like <laughs> Europeans. I'm kind of sloppy, uh, you know, and I'm kind of like and I'm I often feel, you know, like I'm in this world of sort of like like there's these rules that I don't understand. And I'm kind of like And I, there's a way in which I, I, I'm not as, as, as I'm not like Tom, my friend, Tom, you're, you're, you're much of a, you're a jerk. You're very engineered in how you think of things. And, and I have a very, you're chaotic, brute, Andrew, you're I'm, a brute. I'm a brute. I'm a bear. Yeah. In a, in a so, so I think like, that's like, I think that the two kind of have a nice marriage together. If, if you can balance some sophistication with, with a bit of roughness, uh, I think that's Agreed. the, that's the ideal. Agreed. Yeah. All right, thank you, Arabella. That was fantastic. I won't keep you away from the coronation of your new king. <laughs> yeah, of your king, yeah. You better get back to watching it. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, uh.